Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. We're continuing our, ser- uh, our sermon series, Ancestry.Divine. <clears throat> now Nadab and Abihu, <clears throat> excuse me, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has, com- this is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now into your presence, and ask for you to instruct us. We pray that you would come powerfully and wonderfully by your Spirit and open up our eyes to understand the truth of your Word. God, that you would help me to get out of the way as you speak to us today from the preached Word so that we might be instructed and built up in all the things that you would have us to know. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, once again, uh, we are continuing our sermon series, um, Ancestry.Divine. And what we're doing is we're tracing our family history through the Bible from the beginning of the pages of Scripture to the end. This is to say we're going from the book of Genesis to Revelation and looking at everything that the Bible has to say about who we are, where we came from, where we're going, and what our purpose is in the world. And we have seen that God has taken a whole nation of people, and He has set them apart for Himself, and He has made promises to them, and He is using them now to fulfill His purposes in the world. That nation is Israel. God has delivered them powerfully and wonderfully from the bondage of their enemies, and He has promised them a land that they are now going to dwell in, and they will inherit it, and they will inherit it forever and experience safety and security in this place. Moreover, last week we saw that God has once again created a place where his people can meet with him and experience his special presence. That uh, place now at this point in our history is the tabernacle. We have said that all of history is an effort by God to restore his people back to fellowship with himself where they can come and dwell with him and he with them once again in his garden as it was in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Now the sin and rebellion of man has interrupted this process, but again, as we have said, God has not abandoned this original cause. He still continues it today. Now, last week, we finished the book of Exodus by looking at the completion of the tabernacle. Moses and the people had put it together and constructed it just the way that God had told Moses to do so. And we said that that tabernacle was nothing other than a portable garden sanctuary. It is a place where mankind can once again come and meet with their God and they with him and experience fellowship in his presence. At the end of our chapter last week, God came powerfully and wonderfully, and he filled the tabernacle with his presence. 
Now, the book of Levitic, uh, Leviticus kind of picks up where we left off. Uh, the book of Leviticus begins with God calling out to Moses from that most holy place in the tabernacle and giving him instruction on how the people were to worship God and how they were to approach him. And as a matter of fact, that name Leviticus comes from the first three words uh, in the book, which says, and he called. That's where Leviticus comes from. And he called. God called to Moses from out of the tent of meeting, and he instructed them what they were to do. The first seven chapters of Leviticus have to do with sacrifice and how the people are to approach God. Uh, the way that they are to come up and offer their sacrifices and what the priests are to do with those sacrifices when they offer them. Then in chapter 8, the priests are ordained and installed to do this work of bringing the people into the presence of God. This is to say that the priests are now raised up by God to facilitate this fellowship between God and his people. So they will be doing that work. Then in chapter 9, the first sacrifices ever are made in the tabernacle, or at the tabernacle, I should say. And when that ceremony is over, fire comes out from the presence of the Lord and consumes the sacrifices that are left there on the altar, still burning. Thus, God shows his acceptance and approval of the sacrifices that the priest have made. Uh, If you look at 9.24, the last verse, uh, before you get into 10, actually look at 22. This is the end of that ceremony that I just mentioned. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. But in the very next scene, our passage today, we see Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they go up to offer some incense and that same fire comes out and kills them. So what gives? I mean, you you would think that these guys being ordained into the priesthood, the sons of Aaron, they would be able to do this sort of thing. So what happened? First of all, the text says that each took his censer. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So they each take their censer, and that censer is a flat metal fire pan for uh, scraping coals out of the altar, just a flat piece of metal, and they would go up to the altar and they'd get the coals and they would transport the coals from one altar to the other with this fire pan. And the text says that they took some fire, put it into their pan, they put some incense on it, and they were on their way up to the front of the tabernacle where they would go in and offer up this incense on the altar, and fire comes out and kills them. Now what does this mean? They were offering strange fire. text says unauthorized fire. So what does this mean? We cannot know for certain exactly what they did here because uh, the text does not tell us, but from other biblical data, uh, we, can, we can make some, uh, we could draw some conclusions about what might have happened. 
Uh, number one, in the Old Testament, the only person that I can see that was supposed to go into the tabernacle and offer up this incense was Aaron, the high priest. Now, later on, um, it says that they would cast lots for which priest would go in and offer up this incense. Uh, in, in the case of Zechariah, in the beginning of Luke's gospel, we see an instance of that. So it was not as if every priest was able to do it. They would offer up lots, and it, it was possible that you would never get an opportunity to do this. So um, there's a possibility that they were not supposed to be doing this. They're not the right people for it. Moreover, there was a certain time in which the priest was supposed to offer up that altar, uh, that incense on the altar. It was to be in the morning and the evening. Uh, and they do not go in the morning of the evening or the evening. They go in the middle of the day. Uh, second, or I guess we could say third, uh, the incense that was to be offered up on that altar was to be put together in a special way. In other words, God instructed Moses how that incense was to be made, and it was to be made no other way. All right? And last, um, they were only supposed to use fire from the altar of God that was out there in the courtyard to offer up any kind of sacrifices. It was that same fire that was to be kept burning by the priest throughout all the generations, because that was the fire that God accepted and approved of. So in a sense, you could say that God's fire is being used throughout the generations to offer up all these sacrifices, incense included. So we can surmise from the text that Nadab and Abihu decided to offer up this incense on their own initiative. This is to say that they did it according to their own intuitions. Uh, you've got to get yourself into the scene. Okay? They've, they've just offered up the first sacrifice for sins Ever in all of Israel's worshiping and praising God, the text says that they fell down on their faces and shouted. So there's a lot of excitement. And Nadab and Abihu decide that it would be a good idea to add to the occasion by offering up a little incense on the altar. And as they're on their way up there to do it at the front of the tent, God strikes them down dead with this fire. And so they go. Um, now we don't know uh, where they got this fire. Uh, we know it was in the middle of the day because it's after the morning sacrifice, not the appropriate time. It says they got some fire. We don't know where they got their fire. Maybe they got it back from their campsite, got it in their campsite, um, put that on their fire pan. Then they got some incense. We don't know where they got the incense. Maybe they got it out of their tents and they make their way up there to offer what the text calls strange or unauthorized fire and God struck them down because of it. The problem here is they're not supposed to do this, possibly. Um, if you can find a text that shows me anybody other than Aaron is supposed to do it in the Old Testament, and then the priests that are appointed to do it, um, bring it to me. I have not found it yet. So that's a possibility. Uh, and again, they're, they're doing it at an inappropriate time and with an inappropriate element. They're, they're using something that God has not commanded them to use in worship, or they're doing something God has not commanded them to do in worship. As I said, it's strange or unauthorized fire. It's kind of ambiguous, but what we do know is that the text says they did something which the Lord did not command. Did you pick up on that in the text? Read, read it again. Verse 1, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered 
unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And that, brothers and sisters, is what I want to focus in on today. So what did they do? They offered strange and unauthorized fire before the Lord. What does this mean? They did something that was not commanded by God in worship. They did it of their own initiative based on their own intuitions according to their particular historical circumstances. So what are some of the ways that we still offer up strange fire today? Well, first we have to know what God has told us to do in worship in order to know what we're not supposed to do in worship, right? And how do we know what God expects of us in worship? Well, the same way they did, we open up our Bibles and look at what God has said to us about worship. Now, is it possible that Nadab and Abihu did this in all sincerity? They were sincere about what they were doing. They thought it was a good thing. I think it's very possible. The question we have to ask ourselves is, uh, is sincerity enough? Is sincerity enough? Do we think that God is going to accept our worship just because it is sincere? Friends, Nadab and Abihu learned that lesson the hard way. Nadab and Abihu have been given to us as an example of what not to do. They did that which the Lord had not commanded. God has been very careful down through the ages to tell us exactly what he expects from us in worship, and the church has been very careful to do what God has directed them to do in worship. Nadab and Abihu tried to be innovators. They thought, hey, some some incense will go along good with this celebration. Everybody's having a good time. The first sacrifice has just been offered. Let's get some incense and add to the, to the excitement. They decided to go worship God based on their own intuitions, according to what they felt was right for the time. They, they decided to do something that they had no business doing, and for that they were struck down. Now, are we to worship God in the exact same way that the Israelites did here? No. Again, uh, some things have changed as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, the essential uh, elements of an Israelite worship service still remain. Our worship service is to be patterned after the example that we are given here. Uh, The Reformers came up with a principle to guide us in worship. It is known as the regulative principle of worship. And it basically says anything that God has not commanded in Scripture for us to do, or anything that is not taught by pattern or example therein, is forbidden in our worship services. This is to say, if we do not have a command from God telling us what we are to do in worship, or a pattern or an example from the Bible to guide us, we're not to do it. And this is exactly where Nadab and Abihu erred. They did that which God had not commanded in worship. So what has God commanded us to do in worship? There are five things in the New Testament that we're told that we are to do when we gather together. And uh, these categories I get from Ligon Duncan. He boiled them down in his book, Give Praise to God, I think really, really well. Uh, so there's five things that he says. We are, to, we are to sing the Bible. We are to preach and teach the Bible. We are to pray the Bible. We are to read the Bible, and we are to see the Bible 
in our worship services. So first, we are to read the Word of God. Paul tells Timothy that he is to give himself to the public reading of Scripture. And this is because the Word of God, God's Word, is what he says to us. God is speaking to us when we read his Word, and therefore when we hear his Word read, God is speaking. Uh, And in this way, the church is regularly exposed to the whole counsel of God's Word as we are reading through God's Word together, taking everything into context, what he says on a whole to us. So we are to read the Word of God. Second, we are to pray the Word of God. Um, Jesus says that his Father's house is to be a house of prayer. And again, our prayer is to be saturated with Scripture. Our prayers are to be patterned after the examples that are given to us in Scripture of prayer. Third, we are to preach the Word of God and teach the Word of God. We're, to, we're told to preach the Word of God in season and out of season. Uh, we are to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And when the Word of God is faithfully being expounded from the Scriptures, that is God's Word to you. God is speaking to you through the preached word if the minister is being faithful to the text. And you are to accept that as God's word to you. He's speaking when the word is being preached. Fourth, we are to sing the word of God. We're to sing it. In Scripture, we're commanded to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And this doesn't mean that we only sing the psalms or that we only use the words of Scripture in our songs. But again, Our songs are to be patterned after the example of the songs that we see given to us in Scripture. We're to use the language of Scripture in our music, and if it's unbiblical, it goes bye-bye. We don't use it. And fifth, we are to see the Word of God. This is to say that we are to administer the sacraments. Uh, The sacraments are visible words. They are ways in which we see the Word of God, um, Ways in which we see the promises of God in a sensible way. We can see them, uh, we can taste them, we can touch them. These are visible words. And again, the sacraments are to be administered according to the Word of God. Now, a sixth category could be added to this um, of fellowship according to the Word of God. We talked about this the other day in our meeting. Um, because it, it says that the apostles give themselves to the, uh, in the early church, they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, and, and to fellowship. But when we are doing each one of these things together in worship on Sunday morning, fellowship is a part of each one of them. We are communing with one another in worship. And by the way, that is what we are doing when we, uh, when, when we worship together, we are communing Together. This is not a time where we turn inward and have our own private little worship service, but this is something that we are to do with one another with eyes wide open. We sing together, we pray together, we hear the word of God together, we confess the faith together, and do all that we do together here in this worship service. It's a corporate worship service, not an individual worship service, and therefore the nature of everything we do is to be corporate. Now, what are some of the ways that we violate these principles today within American evangelicalism? What are some of the ways that we still offer up strange fire in the evangelical church? And I'm not 
just talking about this church, I'm just I'm saying the church in, in general, um, specifically in America. How have we departed from these principles? What are some of the things that we see happening in worship today that we need to guard ourselves against? I think a lot of it is connected to this 20th century uh, revivalistic mentality that began to happen in the church not long ago. This idea that the worship service is all about getting as many people in the door so that you can get them saved, right? Which has led to some really perverted practices of worship. Ultimately, it has led to an entertainment model of worship in our services. And as Americans, we have to be very careful of this sort of thing. Why is that? Well, because as Americans, we are especially predisposed to entertainment. We love our entertainment in America, right? We can't get enough entertainment. We entertain ourselves to death. It's all about the newest movie, the newest phone, the newest gadget, the newest song, the newest TV show. I mean, we actually have a TV show called American Idol. Have you ever thought about that? This is a show called American Idol where these people get up there and they parade themselves in front of the American people and we vote on which one of them is the best and we love it. We want more of it. We can't get enough of it. More entertainment, faster cars, bigger boats, better vacations. I mean, the whole American dream is based on the idea that you make as much money as you can as quick as possible so that you can retire and sit on the beach for the rest of your life and vegetate, right? We want to be entertained. We want to sit and be entertained. Always looking for something new and exciting to stimulate us. Now, there's nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves. They're good, okay? But when they begin to control us, when they become our highest and greatest aspiration, when they become our idols, they destroy us. Now, this mindset bleeds into our worship services. We're used to being entertained all the time. So then when we come in here, we expect nothing less, right? We want to be entertained when we come in. And American evangelicalism has given it to us. And we, when we come in, we want, the, uh, we want the smoke machines, right? And the strobe lights with the big rock bands. And we want people who are really talented, who can come in and sing solos to us and serenade us in our worship service. We want the lights to go down low We want the minister to be hip and to wear the latest swag, you know, to be relevant. The guy who comes in with the the man bun and the skinny jeans and he kind of gives you a pep talk, right? He's he's more of like your your life coach than anything else. And he he wanders kind of back and forth uh, on the stage. There's no pulpit. That would be too daunting. There might be a a coffee table and a couple chairs or something. Very unthreatening. And uh, he kind of gives you a talk, you know, a self-help talk. Gives you some moral platitudes. Tells you about how you can be good. And then he sends you off with a gospel into the world that cannot save you. Now, that's not everybody that wears skinny jeans, okay? But this is a characterization of what we're seeing in our churches today. We want what's out there in here, right? That's what we want. And we, what we end up doing with this mentality as, is bringing a little bit more of the world into our services every week. A little bit more excitement, a little bit more entertainment, and little by little we get rid of the things that God has told us to do in our worship services. 
And this idea that church is about getting people in the door has done this to us. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, what are we doing here on Sunday morning? What are we here to do? We are here to worship God. That's why we come. We come to worship God. Uh, It is not to be a man-centered worship service. It's not about you. It's about God. This is the place where the people of God come up to renew covenant with Him every week. Uh, Worship is not a time of evangelism. Worship is not a time where we try to get as many unbelievers in the door as we possibly can. Worship is a time where the people of God come up to meet with Him and renew covenant. And all are welcome. All are welcome. Alright? And Paul says that when they come in here and they see us worshiping God truly, the way that He has told us to do so in His Word, they will fall down on their faces and declare that God is among us. They will be converted. But we are not to cater to them. (laughs) We're 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 to worship God and we're to serve Him. And He will convert them. You know, I actually heard something just the other day about our church. What people are saying about our worship here in this church. Um, Somebody I was talking to um, was having a conversation with one of these people about our worship. And they said, it's about our church. They got too much God in there. They got too much God in there. That's what they said. And to that I say, Amen. I'll take it. That's the greatest criticism that the church can ever receive. We want more God in our churches. But you see, this is the mentality out there in the world today. I don't want to come in there and hear about my sins. I don't want to have to confess my sins. I don't want to talk about repentance and faithfulness. I don't want to hear about The cross, the bloody cross, the bloody gospel. I don't want to hear none of that stuff. I don't want to hear about obedience and commitment. Tell me something good about myself. I don't want you to make me feel bad when I come in there. Tell me something good. Can't you tell me something that'll make me feel good? And to that I say, no, I can't. can't tell you something good about yourself. We can only do that which God has commanded. And people say, well, that's not entertaining. You need to jazz it up a little bit, you know? Add some, some smoke and some glitter. And to that, I say, be careful. Uh, we don't want to find ourselves entering into the sin of Nadab and Abihu, who thought they were going to add a little something to God's worship. We cannot go beyond what is written. Reformed churches are not entertaining. We are not in the business of entertainment. and people will say, well, your church won't grow. Well, that's a load of crap. You you mean to tell me that you know better than God? I mean, the whole thing is about God, and He has told us what to do. If you want to know the best way to go about doing something, you go to what? The operator's manual, right? Look at what the Creator has said about it. Now, granted, you can get a lot of people in the door if you abandon biblical principles, but ultimately at the end of the day, that's all you're going to be doing is getting people into the door. The church is supposed to be a place where the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ meet together to worship God. People that are committed to Jesus and exalting His name. It's not a stadium. 
It's not a theater. It's not an auditorium. It is not a place where you just try to fill seats every week. It's a place where people are to come and be discipled. A place where disciples are made. And the only way that we can do that is if we do what God has told us to do in worship. We do that which God has commanded us. And he tells us to pray, to preach, to teach, to sing, to read, and to see the word of God. And in so doing, we will see the blessings of God. Uh, Biblical worship is simple. It's not extravagant. You can do it anywhere in the world. And depending on where you go, it will look different based on your context. But nevertheless, these five things remain. And it's through these things that God has determined that we should worship him because we are, and since we are the people with whom God has made covenant and we are the people that God has revealed his word to, we ought to be very careful um, to obey the things that he has told us to do. And that is Moses' response to what happened. Uh, If you look back in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 10, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. The priest in Israel bore a great responsibility to God because they were the ones who had been set apart by God to do this work of teaching the people about worship. Those who have been set apart by God, those who are closest to God, are all the more obligated to make sure the word of God is held in highest esteem above all things. The things that God has said to us in his word are to control every aspect of our thinking, especially in worship. And God has set apart the elders of this church to guard and to make sure that the commandments of God are kept with respect to worship. And if he's going to make an example out of somebody, most likely it's going to be one of us. But nevertheless, all of us have been brought near to God by the blood, have we not? We are, we are those with whom God has made covenant, and we are those who are obligated to obey him in all things. Um, as we have said, Christ is now our high priest, and he has offered up the once-for-all sacrifice in himself. And in the new covenant, he has made us all priests in the kingdom of God, and we are now to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must be all the more careful to make sure that God is glorified among the people. And the only way we can do that is if we look to what God has said to us in his word about worship. So let our worship be regulated by Scripture alone, and let Scripture alone be the only infallible rule for worship in our service. Let's pray together. 